Just a reminder, our podcast deals with crimes that are often violent and graphic in nature, so listener discretion is advised. So when in doubt, leave the kids out. Now, please let us take you back in time. Hello, welcome back, old time crime gals. I'm Melissa here. I'm Shannon. And we're back for another week. We are no longer drowning in water. The weather is wonderful. Oh, yeah. Beautiful outside. It's gorgeous outside. And it's only going to get hotter from here, unfortunately. I know you're worried, but it's going to Well, be my okay. AC went out today in my car. Oh. So I'm well. a little worried. So do you have windows that roll down? Yes, I do. <laughs> they were all down, which is why my hair is all in a mess. And I'm so glad you can't see that yes. you're just listening to me. Because my hair is all in. And she does like her air conditioner. I so do. Hopefully much. they can get that fixed. But we're going to do a little something different this week. And I'm going to let Shannon tell a story. Yay. I'll go ahead and apologize up front. No. <laughs> um, so we're speaking of sunny. We're going to California. I don't know. San Francisco. Yeah. I don't. Um, we're talk going back to the 1900s to a young girl that was um, named Nora Fuller. She actually um, was going to try to help her mom out because her mom was a single mother and so she was going to get a job. And back then, the best thing to look for a job was the newspaper. Hopefully everyone knows what a newspaper is. Oh, come on now. Um, so a newspaper is where she began to look for her job and she was... Uh, she applied and was going to leave to meet her future employer, but she never returned again. This is the mysterious death of Nora Fuller. Nora was born in China in 1886 to English parents. Um, they were living there at the time, and her father was an engineer on a steamboat. Eventually, that marriage dissolved with Nora's father, and so Alice, her mother, married another man by the name of W.W. Fuller. The family relocated to San Francisco, and after about seven years of being married, Miss Parline, or Parline? Par Parline. Parline files for divorce. Now she's a single mother with four small children. All right, I have a question. Okay. Fuller, Parline, was that her? Parline was her dad, the Biological fathers. Okay. Last name. Okay. So All when right. she remarried, it was Fuller. Okay. So then she um, remarried and then got a divorce. So now she's single with four small children. They ended up living. I guess you can tell who does the research. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> so they ended up living at 1747 Fulton Street. Um, Nora was, she was seeing her mother struggle, which, you know, the early 1900s, 15 year olds were a little more mature than they are now. Yes. And I think I was dancing in my bedroom to Britney Spears or something when I was 15. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine was Madonna. So I don't know what that says about me and Melissa, but, um, yeah. So we were dancing in a room, uh, but Nora was probably watching her mom struggle and thought, Hey. I need to get a job to help her out. And so her mom thought that was probably a good idea. And Nora was going to have to leave school, which that was something else that happened in the early 1900s. A lot of 
um, kids that were, especially young ladies and, and guys that were um, older. Well, they especially would like right here work. in the farming community, yeah. you would have to help on the farm. There would just be no other. That's other right. Way. Or if you had siblings, you had to stay home and help yeah. with them. And then the younger ones got to go to school. So she thought, hey, let, let me leave school and start work. And her mom agreed that that was a good idea. So on January the 8th, there was an ad that ran in the local paper called The Chronicle, and it read, Wanted, young girl to take care of baby, good home and good wages. There were instructions for people to apply to send a letter to a certain address. And so Nora did this. She thought, hey, I can take care of a little baby. I've got, you know, there's four of us. Um, January the 11th, she got a reply. That seems really fast for being that time mm -hmm. period, but I guess if it was within the same town. So she got the reply and she received a postcard that gave further instructions. And it read, Miss Fuller, in answer to yours in response to my advertisement, kindly call at the popular restaurant, 55 Geary Street, and inquire for Mr. John Bennett at one o'clock. If you can't come at one, Come at six, John Bennett. And so me and Melissa were talking before the, um, we were starting the podcast. And back then it was traditional to say uh, call, meaning come to the show popular. Up. Yeah, show up. <laughs> uh, for example, a young gentleman may call on a lady, meaning going to her house to pick her up to go out on a date. So that was what this was asking for. Um, with everything lined up, Things were looking good. She got ready and was prepared to meet her new employer, Mr. John Bennett, and begin earning some money to help her mom out. She left the house, taking the postcard with her. One hour later, the phone rings at the Fuller residence. Nora's 12-year-old brother, Lewis, answers the phone. Nora was on the other line, and it sounded like she was a little irritated and possibly nervous. She explained that she was at 1500 Geary Street, her boss's address, and that he wants her to start work right away so that she would not be coming home. Lewis uh, relayed the message to Nora's mom, but the mom, she must kind of felt uncomfortable or something about this because she said, no, you need to come on home right now and then you can start work on Monday. Because I think that was a Saturday. So she was probably like, nope, nope, come back, start at the beginning of the week. Yeah. Just probably thought it was a little odd that, you know, mm -hmm. that he's supposed to be meeting all these possible um, applicants. Yes. <laughs> and then all of a sudden she can start. And it, yeah, it was probably a little fishy. Um, so anyway, uh, he the brother went and told the um, sister what the mother had said. And then she said, all right, Nora did to her brother, Lewis. And mm -hmm. then they just hung her up. Click, <laughs> click. Never, um, Nora was never heard from again. So, yeah, what happens next is a little, um, a little contradictory because one site said one thing, another site said another. Either way, everyone wants to find Nora, but there was one, um, site that said, um, her brother went to like a Masonic meeting at a lodge and came home and the mom was crying because Nora wasn't there yet. So they immediately started to, you know, try to figure out where she was. And another one said a few days later, she called police. 
And as a mom, I don't uh, think it would be a few days later. I think I would be worried about her, especially after I said, hey, come home, and you could start Monday, and then you don't come home. Right, yeah, because so, it sounded like she really wanted her to be at home. So to me, I think the other way around was more believable. So the brother probably kick-started some questions, and, and they started looking as soon as he got home from that meeting later on that night. How old was the brother? Twelve. Twelve, okay. He could have had some kind of, you know misinterpretation of the phone call or or just you know thought who knows um especially being if he was when they did call if he was questioned and stories but that one change. that seemed more believable that that so they probably went to the restaurant because that's the last place they knew she was going but it was already closed because it was late so they weren't going to get anywhere and so all right so they didn't. They went back to the restaurant, like you said, and then they were going to backtrack where she um, visited. Even after that, the owner of the restaurant, F. W. Crone. No. Ah, I messed up, guys. <laughs> All right, we'll just call it as it is today. The sun got into my brain. The vitamin D. So when she called home, she stated that she was at fifteen hundred fifteen hundred Geary Street. That is where. Um, they go first to find Nora. Yeah, because she said that was her boss's address. Right. Okay. But there's a problem because 1500 Geary Street is a vacant lot. So there's nothing there. And now they've got, <laughs> now they've got a backtrack. Okay. I got ahead <laughs> of myself. The popular restaurant where she was supposed to meet her employer, um, John Bennett, is where they went next. Right? Yes. Okay. All right. The owner of the restaurant, F.W. Crone, is questioned. He reveals that a patron that was somewhat of a regular arrived at 5.30 p.m. on January the 11th. That was the night that Nora went missing. He approached the counter and told him that if a young girl were to come in and ask for a John Bennett to go ahead and send her to his table. Sounds like he might be a regular. He was described as a well-dressed man around 40 years old possibly around um, five foot nine inches or so, 170 pounds, and he had a mustache. It was noted that he sat around for about half an hour and then began to pace outside on the sidewalk before leaving. The owner said he never saw Nora come into the restaurant. He had recognized the man as a regular customer, but never knew his real name. That was the first evening he had heard of John Bennett. His staff had given the patron another name, Tenderloin. Can you imagine why they gave him that name, Melissa? Tenderloin. Well, I know why. <laughs> yes. Can you out there imagine why he was named Tenderloin? Um, the wait, this is a clean show, ladies and gentlemen. The wait staff mentioned that he comes in frequently, is fond of porterhouse steaks. It's his usual dish, and he never orders anything else. So he always just ate the tenderloin. So that's why they gave him the nickname. If Tenderloin. I'm ordering a steak, I'm eating the whole steak. Sorry. Yeah. So <laughs> he must have, I imagine steaks in the 1900s. He had to have some money. Probably. Yeah. Um, so on January the 16th, five days out from Nora's disappearance, the press started to publish longer articles about the case. Um, so now it's gaining attention and more information is becoming available. Um, and there was also some pretty disturbing developments that seemed to line up with Nora's timeline. January 8th, three days before Nora goes missing, a real estate office by the name of Umson & Co.'s 
gets a Listen and company. Oh. <laughs> no, no, you're good. Come on. Uh, uh, Upson and, and company. company. I read codes. <laughs> it could be. Upson and company gets a visit from a gentleman who inquires about renting a two-story building at the address 2211 Sutter Street. All right. This gentleman named C.S. Lahanier, La Lahanier, La like to me. Who worked at the real estate office answered the the man's questions, but the man wanted to rent the building. And when asked to provide references, he said that he didn't have any. That he was new to the area, and he was traveling, and um, he was staying at the Golden West Hotel with his wife. So, despite having no references, and because he was a well dressed man, um, and he had a and had a demanding nature, which you just said yep. probably appeared intimidating. Um, and he also paid up front one month's rent. So obviously money talks, whether it's the 1900s or 2021. <laughs> so he was able to pay one month's rent and Lehanier gives the gentleman the key after the contract is signed. It is signed C.B. Hawkins. Later, uh, when the employee recounts the incident and describes the gentleman, the description is the same as John Bennett. So it's funny because there's a lot of different initial names like FW, um, CC, CB, WW. Yes, <laughs> but John Bennett is a full name. So um, the next day, there was a locksmith uh, sent over and a cleaning staff to get ready for the new tenant. After a few days, they could tell that it was still vac vacant, which was odd. Yeah, you would think a man coming in town that it would be, you know, already, hey, I want to rent this. He's ready to get, get out in. of the hotel. Yeah. You know, so um, it was still empty, and they called the hotel to inquire about C.B. Hawkins, but there wasn't a guest registered there, and no one recognized the description or the name C.B. Hawkins. So the house just sat there until February 8th, and then the rent was due. Um, it was obvious the rental company was not going to get paid, so they sent a collector by the name of H-E, <laughs> A-B-C-D-E-F-G, sounds like we're saying the whole alphabet in these H -E -D. names, H-E-D, to enter 2211 Sutter Street and find out what was up. He enters using a pass key from the rental company, finds that the entire bottom floor is empty, there's no furniture, no sign of life, nothing, it's dark. And it, you know, appears that nothing was ever there. Yeah. Uh, he slowly makes his way upstairs, expecting to find the same. It seemed as though nothing ever was there. And so he was going to um, go back. He went to the back bedroom and the door was locked. This is sounding a little ominous and creepy. I don't know if I could Second be a collector. Could you be a collector if you uh, had to do something like this? No. Whew. So he clicks the lock and enters. And he had to let his eyes adjust, I guess, because the room was so the dark and the shades were, were drawn. Um, I wonder if they had blackout shades back then. <laughs> that was not part of my research. <laughs> the shades were drawn, blocking light, so the room was dark. All he could make out was a brightly colored piece of cloth on the floor. Um, but he had a horrible gut feeling and decided that he better leave immediately. I would have felt that way before I even went into the locked room. <laughs> I would have been out the door. And so 
he calls the police um, to help enter the room. Dun, 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 and find out what happens next in just a moment. All right, we're back. Continuing to talk about Nora Fuller and her disappearance. So, Dean, the collector that came in to investigate and mm-hmm. open up the um, apartment or the building. It was a building, I guess. Um, brought, Two stories, yes. yes. I mean, I'm just thinking, wow, I guess. I don't know. Officer Gill was brought back with him. And they enter and pull up the blinds, letting the light in the room. And the only furniture in the entire house was in this one room that had been behind a locked door. So there's a chair sitting beside a bed. On the bed, there were two new sets of sheets, a blanket, and a quilt covering the body of a nude, decomposing young woman. Um, So Mm -hmm. Officer Gill had the sinking feeling that Nora had finally been found. Um, How do you think they knew that the sheets were new? It said they hadn't been laundered, so I guess they probably still had, like, the, you know how they fold them up so yeah. tight and they had the creases in them? I had to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I had to answer this time. Yay! <laughs> so, um, Nora, or we think possibly the body of Nora, um, a body had been found. And so, her brother, Lewis, they brought him in to identify her at the morgue. Which, I don't know why, if he was 12, why he was the one doing the identifying. Yeah, but, that's I mean, I'm sad. pretty sure her mom agreed but I, he was the only one that was mentioned. So um, it was, in fact, Nora Fuller. Uh, she was found almost a month after she had disappeared. There were, was no food or drink in the house, and there was no heat. Um, the gas had never been turned on. And so it was apparent that C.B. Hawkins or John Bennett, whoever the man was, had no intentions of using this as a residence. And it was just basically to buy him time um, after this gruesome act. There was little evidence surrounding this crime and the crime scene. So they didn't really have a lot to go on. Um, Her clothes were in the room. Her purse was also there, but it was completely empty. They found a card in her purse with the inscription, Mr. Here we go with alphabet again. (laughs) Mr. M. A. Severbrenick of Port Arthur. Um, but they, they think that was just a misdirect. Um, the man was on a boat to China during her disappearance and had nothing to do with the case. Hmm. So um, there was a cigar end on the floor and a half a bottle of whiskey on the mantel. Kind of a strange circumstances, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Nora's jacket, there were several letters addressed to Miss, Miss C.B. Hawkins. Um, they were mostly advertisement for furniture stores. Ironically. There was yeah. no furniture in the, in the house. <laughs> That's true. A chair and a bed. He searched really hard for the best deal for that one chair yeah. and one bed. <laughs> Since he'd already spent so much money on renting the house for a month, <laughs> yeah. he wanted to save some. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, even though she left with that postcard from John Bennett, it was never found in her possession. So I guess he... He made sure he took the card back with yeah. him. I guess it had his handwriting on it or something. Probably so. The toxicologist, back was it? The toxicologist, <laughs> when determining, sorry guys, cause of death, studied Nora's stomach contents. No traces of poisons or drugs. Um, and he could also tell that she had eaten an apple a few hours before her death. 
and that she might have consumed some alcohol um, and her body just wasn't used to it. Her mother had said that the apple um, was eaten before leaving the house to meet Mr. Bennett, her future employer possibility. And it was highly likely that she died shortly after making that phone call home um, and had been at that residence since. So after calling her brother to say I needed to work now and yeah. I wouldn't be coming home, um, sounds like she died probably. Kind of was forced, yeah. forced goodbye message. Yes. Like. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and so the autopsy surgeon concluded that she had been strangled to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was also obvious that she had been raped and um, mutilated. So really sad to think about a 15-year-old having to go through that. Uh, so as news was getting out, people started coming forward as witnesses. Many people had detailed information to give the police. And there's always witnesses, you know, and they have to mm-hmm. weed through the truth and what might not be the truth. And especially since they didn't have a lot of evidence, I'm sure they really wanted to talk to people. Uh, So on January 9th, someone matching the description of both Hawkins and Bennett entered J.C. Cavanaugh's furniture store. The man was well-dressed, wore a silk hat. He said he needed to furnish a room temporarily. um, And he picked out some secondhand throw pillows, a comforter and a blanket, along with a top mattress. He insisted the items um, be delivered at night. Hmm. Red flag, red flag. Yes. (laughs) Have to be delivered under the cover of darkness. He was worried that the delivery man would switch out his mattress for another one. So to make sure he he wrote his initials on the tag, C-B-H. We should have tagged this one, the initial story. (laughs) They had to pay someone overtime to make sure the order got delivered at night. The delivery man rang the bell and waited for the man to come to the door. When trying to bring the stuff in, he noticed there were no lights on. He asked the gentleman to cut some lights on so he could see. He was told to just go and leave the things outside. So, because there was no no gas, there was no available lights. Yeah. And instead of answering questions or, you know, coming off kind of weird, he was just like, fine, just leave it there and I'll do it. Red flag (laughs) number two. All right. Of course, you know, this guy's just the delivery guy and hopefully got paid extra, so he probably didn't yeah. care. So the next day on January the 10th, a bed and a chair were purchased from another furniture store and they were delivered and set up in the room they were found in. Probably during the day where the notice of no heat or light lights wouldn't be a red flag. When asked to describe the customer, he gave one that matched both the Hawkins and Bennett man. Plus, it's a lot easier to move just a mattress by yourself, but to put a bed together, he probably would rather than come upstairs and put it there. So they were allowed to come in and put the bed together. So I wonder what happened to the other furniture they left outside because it didn't say it was It was just a mattress. Oh, it's just a mattress. The first store was just the comforter, the pillows, the ma- and the mattress. Oh, that's right. The second hand and, and this one was a chair and a bed. Oh, okay. So, so they brought the bed in and put it together. Got you. So bringing the mattress in wouldn't have been hard. Okay. <laughs> then Nora had a friend named Matt. I was, um, I paused for a minute because I was thinking, <laughs> how did I not remember the mattress only? Because he wrote his initials on the tag. That's right. All right. So Madge Graham was a friend of Nora's. She lived only 150 yards away at 2088 Sutter Street. I guess people say 20, 2088. 2088. 
But it is 2088, you know, true, technically. True, true, true. 2088 Sutter Street. <laughs> Nora had confided in her that she had a secret older boyfriend by the name of Bennett. It was her belief that the advertisement for the babysitting job was just a ruse to get out of the house and live with him. She even stated that one time Nora begged her to tell Alice, which is her, her mother, mother yeah. that they were going to the theater when in ra- reality they didn't go together. Um, Nora went with the mysterious Mr. Bennett. There was a grocery store a few blocks from Nora's house. They claimed that she would always visit and call a friend at a hotel. They thought that was odd because she had a working phone in her house. Perhaps those calls were her, to her secret boyfriend, Bennett. And of course, her mom wouldn't, you know, she would want to know, her mom to know. So, Well, if you have to leave your house and go to a grocery store and call your boyfriend, you probably don't need the boyfriend. That's true. I have to agree <laughs> with that. So... With very little leads to work. And, of course, this is all being said after she's gone. Yeah. So, um, with very little leads to work, they brought in a handwriting expert. It was obvious um, that C.B. Hawkins changed his address to 2211 Sutter Street. And once the month's rent ran out, it would change hands. They figured he would put in a change of address. So... Is that correct? Over th- th- that is correct. Whoa. Over Can you imagine going through? <laughs> 32,000 change of address notices were sifted through. By one person. That's one wow. handwriting expert. Man, uh, that's a lot. That's a lot of signatures to look at. Three were found to be similar, and one was practically identical. However, this man moved far away and was tracked down and had nothing to do with the case. That's wild how they're similar and then one's identical and it's nothing to do with the case. Um, yeah, he had moved states away and they sent a detective out to track him down and it he had absolutely nothing. It was completely just a coincidence that his signature looked similar to the right. Hawkins man. Gotcha. So now this next person is a lady mm-hmm. by the name of Ollie, Ollie. Blazier, I'm assuming, or Blazier. 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 If you want to be fancy. Yeah, we, we can are, make her fancy. We are in San Francisco, so <laughs> Blazier. And so she lived in the area. And once newspapers started um, putting information out there and wanted people to come forward, she realized that she might actually be sitting on some information that would be a crucial puzzle piece. Um, and it might help solve what happened to Nora Fuller. In her apartment, which she shared with Charles B. Hadley, there was a picture of him on the wall he had given her. He signed it on the back. The signature was strikingly similar to the signatures on the rental agreement and the initials on the mattress tag. She immediately called it into police and gave them the picture. The handwriting expert determined that the same person had written all of the samples, It was also discovered that Hadley, who recently disappeared because of embezzlement issues with his employer, had a fake mustache that he had purchased. He also loved porterhouse steaks and had the same habit habit of just eating the tenderloin part and discarding the rest. Hmm. Sounds familiar. (laughs) Could this be tenderloin from the popular restaurant? Was that the name of it? Popular restaurant. Wow, yeah. popular restaurant. Okay. Um, just because it seems weird to have a name, popular restaurant. 
I like this because, you know, now we have composite sketches and programs for sketches that they create these, you know, 3D models of what perpetrators, you know, and suspects look like. But back then they didn't have that. So, <laughs> so the authorities <laughs> took his photograph and then they added a fake, <laughs> fake mustache and hat. That sounds like what and you know. And they carried your, it around in like your cereal boxes. <laughs> So was it a motorcycle mustache? Was it a <laughs> handlebar mustache? Yeah, the handlebar or the um, where it sticks straight out and they twist it. It's the handlebar. Of, yeah, that's the right? handlebar. I thought they also like went straight out like cat whiskers. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We're, that, we're I, not doing a mustache class. No, we're not doing. Okay, all right. Google that if you have questions. <laughs> I'm just curious. Or like, send us an I email guess, if you know, for real. I guess people describe I always thought that what, was like yeah. handle, handlebar mustache. Yeah, it probably is. But I guess people describe what type of mustache he had. So yeah. they probably helped draw it. But anyway, I can't help but think about when we draw cartoons on old newspaper <laughs> articles. <laughs> ah, okay. So they took yeah. the photograph and added the fake mustache and hat and showed it to all the witnesses who had come in contact with Bennett Hawkins almost all agreed that it was so similar to who they dealt with the police officially accused him of the disappearance and murder of Nora Fuller but he was nowhere to be found it was later learned that his name wasn't even Hadley it was Charlie Start okay <laughs> wow I mean that would to me would be nowhere close Charlie Start he was never found most of the documents pertaining to the investigation were destroyed in the San Francisco fires of 1906. It is highly unlikely that new information will ever come to light, and we may never know exactly what happened to Nora that day when she left her house. Her mysterious death will forever remain one of San Francisco's famous cold cases. Most of the information for today's episodes came from an article by Jason Lucky Morrow. His website is historicalcrimedetective.com, and it was super detailed and well-written. So shout out to Jason. Your entire website is what we are about and full of stories we love. So guys, that's um, the story of Nora Fuller. And um, next time you read a newspaper article asking for someone to come and help babysit their child, Don't you do might want to think twice about that. Don't do it. So, and Melissa, you want to uh, tell them what they can do? Yeah, all the sources will be listed on the episode description. Um, please make sure that you find us. You can find us on Spotify, Facebook. We're on Instagram, oldtimecrimegals at gmail.com. Just please remember we'll be back next week. And in the meantime, if you do a crime, it'll catch up with you in time. And then we'll talk about it.